So far, we've talked about the first two pillars of lifestyle medicine, physical activity and healthy eating. So before moving on, let's take a look at how these two areas fit together to influence one of the biggest health areas in America today, weight management. Now the learning objectives for this module include being able to explain the basics of energy balance, including all the various components, describing the long-term issues with significant caloric deficit and metabolism, being able to compare and contrast the approaches to sensible eating that might include things like caloric density, mindful eating, portions, satiety, and the sugar cycle. And ideally, by the end, being able to discuss approaches to an activity plan that can help maintain metabolism and overcome plateaus. And of course, because that's part of the ideal of this class is learning the coaching strategies that might be necessary to help focus on behavior change with regard to weight management. Now, weight in the U.S., you might remember this image from the very first module. This is the prevalence of self-reported obesity in the U.S. in the year 2017. And you can see here that all but two of the states or territories have more than 25% of the population would be categorized and self-categorized as obese. So 160 million Americans are obese or overweight. And more than 45 million adults are dieting or trying to lose weight. And this is a crazy number too. $60 billion a year are spent on gym memberships, books about dieting, and other products and services related to weight management. Now, just as I talked about in module one, we live in a quick fix society. So fighting that culture is going to be part of the difficulty with doing weight management discussions with a patient or client, because people do have a mindset of, I wanna lose it fast with as little effort as possible, which is part of what fuels the fitness and dieting industry that markets the latest equipment, fancy products or supplements with claims for fast results, because that's just easier than behavior change. Some of the biggest issues, however, is that even though those products may produce results quickly, and I say may, there are some critical issues. One of the biggest ones is sustainability. Often, if they produce quick results, it's not often something that you could maintain for life. And so what that may lead to is a yo-yo dieting process. And that becomes discouraging and ends up leading people into a process of um, negative self-thoughts related to weight. They feel like a failure. They feel that they just can't possibly be a healthy weight. And so unfortunately, that quick fix um, doesn't always create the sustainability necessary for maintaining weight for a lifetime. The other issue here is the effects on metabolism. So extreme approaches to dieting can have a long-term effect on your resting calorie burn. And you can see some of the description of that in the module chapter because it talks about a study that was done on contestants on The Biggest Loser. And those individuals, even years later, had a lower resting metabolism um, calorie use than would be expected for someone of their age, height, and weight. So that creates an issue. Whereas long-term, slow weight loss that doesn't drastically reduce the metabolism is going to create more sustainable weight loss. But how much should a person weigh? There's a big difference between perception and reality. And it's also true that it's not always just about the number on the scale. It's important to consider what is safe, what is realistic, and what is attainable for any given situation and any individual. You have to take into account, account things like medical history. For example, does someone have high blood pressure? In that case, in addition to weight, salt intake and exercise are going to be a really important part of bringing down blood pressure. Are they pre-diabetic or diagnosed as a type 2 diabetic? The amount of carbs and type of carbs along with exercise to manage blood glucose are going to be just as important as weight reduction. 
in family history. Is there a history of diabetes? Is there a history of blood pressure? And more importantly, is there a history of obesity itself? Because as the information in the chapter discusses, if you have a family history of obesity, you do have a greater likelihood of being obese yourself. Now there are multiple parts to this. This could partly be upbringing or environment that leads to the behaviors that you have adopted as your own habits. And those would be modifiable. So your influence as you were growing up. But there is also a genetic portion. And there are certain um, genetic components that might make you produce more of a certain hormone. And we'll talk more about that at the end of the lecture. There is a particular hormone, um, leptin, that has been associated with obesity. And so a genetic predisposition to some of those things may make it more likely that you'll be fighting with weight at um, a, a different way than another individual. And body fat distribution. We talked about this previously. This is that whole apple versus pear idea, right? That it sometimes is less about the weight itself versus where that weight is carried. Because those who carry more abdominal fat have greater chronic disease risk, for example, heart disease, than those who carry weight below the waist. And in those cases, there is less chronic disease risk. Functional ability. Does weight inhibit someone's activities of daily living or leisure activity? And then on the other side of the spectrum, are there disabilities that affect someone's ability to even engage in physical activity? And therefore, they may have issues with maintaining weight because they are not able to use exercise in the way that someone else would to balance out caloric intake. So those are all considerations. How much a person, person should weigh based on height and gender, those things are just not um, black and white. There are a lot of things to consider. So, you know, one of the biggest things that's part of the consideration is that it requires a commitment and it has to be a lifelong habit. And there's three components here we're going to talk about through this module. Healthy eating is a big component, regular exercise, lifelong exercise, and just considering sensible behaviors, ways that you can address behavior change as part of this process. But one of the hardest things for people to accept who are trying to obtain weight loss is that this is not something that can or should happen fast. And we will talk about the myriad of reasons why it should not happen fast. Many times people take several years to put on weight. And so it cannot be expected that it will come off in a few weeks. And that's not healthy and it can have long-term effects. Now, before we go over approaches with each of these in the context of weight management, I'd like to go over some of the basics of energy needs. So let's talk about calorie and energy balance and the components of energy expenditure. Now, some of this may be review for you, so just bear with me if that's the case. We need to talk about various components of this because some of them can be affected by counseling and encouragement to change. Other things are relatively static. So the total daily energy expenditure is made up of three main components. Those three components consist of the resting metabolic rate, sometimes termed resting energy expenditure or basal metabolic rate, regardless of what you call it. That is the amount of energy that is used at rest, not including activity. Then there is energy that is used just for digestion, breaking down the foods that you eat. And then the thing that we're all going to be talking about a little more, and that's the thing you have the most control over, the energy you expend due to physical activity. And that could be formal exercise or what's called non-exercise activity. Those things that are just everyday ambulation, part of getting around and doing things that you need to do in your life. So let's go over each of these in a little bit more detail. The basal metabolic rate is the energy that you burn even at rest doing necessary bodily functions such as breathing, maintaining your heart rate, filtering your blood through the kidneys and liver, things like hair and nail growth, and other functions of vital organs, maintaining your temperature, for example. 
And this makes up between 60 and 70% of your daily expenditure. This is the majority of the energy that you use on a daily basis. Now, it's a good reminder for people that this is the majority of that energy that you use because it will also help with understanding some of the limitations of caloric deficit. Because while this is largely unchangeable, it is affected by the amount of lean body mass a person has. For example, their muscle mass. And so if as part of the weight loss process, someone also loses muscle mass, their metabolism may drop. And so that's why there is a range, even though it is relatively static within a single person, it can change based on the amount of lean body mass that someone has. So a similar thing occurs when somebody has deconditioning from being sedentary, either from a recent illness or from um, a long-term amount of being sedentary. This lowers metabolism because of a loss of muscle mass. You just don't need as much energy if you're not doing as much, and so you begin to lose some of that muscle mass. You also use energy to digest food, and it only makes up about 10% of the total calories that you consume. Now, let's say, for example, you took in 500 calories. You use about 50 calories of that just to digest whatever you ate. And it does differ slightly with the type of food that you take in. For example, you use a little bit more energy when you digest proteins and carbs than you do if you digest fats. Now, that doesn't mean that you should go with all proteins and carbs because you're going to end up using a lot more energy to to digest than you would if you were taking in fats. And that's because we often tend to ignore the thermal effect of food and calculations because the, um, the contribution of this to the total energy expenditure is actually smaller than the probable error that exists in trying to estimate what you take in in terms of calories and what you put out in terms of your activity. So it's not really something that we're going to look at any more than just this slide. What we will talk about, however, is the energy expenditure of physical activity because this is highly changeable. It's between 15 and 30% of your daily expenditure and that absolutely varies based on a person. A highly sedentary individual with a desk job who commutes back and forth in their car for an hour, who goes home and sits on the couch and binges Netflix all night, they may have below 15% of their daily expenditure from physical activity. Whereas a professional elite athlete who has lots of practices and lots of training, they may have greater than 30% of their daily expenditure from physical activity. This is broken down into two different components. Organized, structured activity done as exercise to intentionally raise the heart rate and those things that are just part of daily life, informal, everyday activities. That's called your NEAT, non-exercise activity thermogenesis. And this is just your walking from place to place, walking from your car to, to work or to school, housework, yard work, getting groceries, anything that you're doing that's not sitting. And so this is a potentially a critical first step of understanding for somebody who is highly sedentary. So this critical first step could be what they are interested in changing. They may be kind of hesitant about taking on an exercise routine, but you might be able to convince someone to park farther away at the store, park farther away at work, take the stairs instead of the elevator at work to stand at their desk instead of sit. So that idea of moving more and sitting less, doing yard work, intentionally um, doing more housework, perhaps with music or at a faster pace than they might normally do it. So sometimes these small tweaks in NEAT are a little more negotiable for people in the very early stages of including more activity in their lives. And again, that's all part of the coaching conversation. You have to meet people where they are. Now, in order to talk more about energy balance with individuals, we have to understand how energy is measured. It is measured in calories, and it is considered, by definition, the amount of heat required to raise the temperature of one kilogram of water one degree Celsius. But I'm not going to ask you to be able to spit that back to me. 
It can be important, however, to have people understand if they're interested and willing to, to let you share that. A little bit more about how calories may differ between different types of foods or different macros or food groups. So protein gives you four calories per gram of that food. Carbohydrates give you four calories per gram. Fat, on the other hand, provides nine calories of energy per gram. And sometimes we forget about alcohol. And we will talk later on in the semester about reducing risky substances. And for some people, they may not have a realization of the amount of calories that they're actually drinking by having a couple beers or a couple cocktails. And so that doesn't even necessarily count the carbs or sugars that are in those drinks. The alcohol in and of itself gives you seven calories per gram of the alcohol itself. So there are multiple ways to measure the energy intake and expenditure. And the book talks a little bit more about these. I put them here for completeness sake, but to be quite honest, these are not something that are typically used in your everyday um, work with a patient or client. Bomb calimetry is what is used to determine calories in food, but it doesn't account for the things that go undigested when you are consuming them. In other words, fiber. Um, but direct cal calorimetry or using a room calorimeter can tell you a little bit more about that because it's a real situation with an individual in a controlled environment measuring the heat production during their everyday, well, in this case, they're in a room, so it might not be everyday activity, but that's one of the issues with using a room calorimeter. A doubly labeled water system allows you to go about your day over several days and measure calorie use. But again, it's kind of expensive to do this process. So these require either highly specialized equipment or fairly expensive procedures. And so they're not typically used. Most of the time, we just estimate the intake and expenditure necessary with equations. And I'm sure, again, this may be review for you, so bear with me. If it's not, hopefully this will be, um, you know, a little bit enlightening as we start to talk about how to manage weight with an awareness of caloric intake. So estimating caloric expenditure, you have to take those three components that are part of your total daily energy expenditure. So that's determining the basal metabolic rate, so the calories you need just to do your everyday bodily functions, even at rest. Then the average number of calories that are burned through physical activity, and then that little 10% or so of the thermic effect of food. And the most commonly used way to do this is the Harris-Benedict equation. And for that, there are many calculators available online that allow you to do this without doing the actual math. You have to know whether the individual is male or female, take their weight in kilograms, and actually some of the online calculators, particularly here in the U.S., will make it so that you don't have to know that in kilograms or centimeters. So weight in kilograms, but if, if it allows you to choose the... Um, the actual measures, you can change it to pounds, the height in centimeters, and the age in years. And what this will then do is tell you the basal metabolic rate. In order to find out, however, the amount of calories required to account for the activity level of a person, we will multiply that by an activity factor to obtain the caloric need of that person. So this all depends on how active a person is. If they're sedentary, they don't need a whole lot more than their actual basal metabolic rate would tell you. So 1.2 is the factor you would use, <clears throat> excuse me, for someone who is getting little to no exercise. If they're lightly active, meaning maybe light exercise or sports one to three days a week, you know, fairly light exercise. 1.375, someone getting moderate exercise three to five days, it's more like 1.5, 1.55. A very active individual with more what we consider a vigorous level of exercise nearly every day during the week this would be 1.725 versus someone who has a very physical job. They're doing a high amount of physical training. That would be almost two, almost a factor of two for the basal metabolic rate. So this all put together allows us to get the daily caloric need. And once we have that, we can determine a suggested caloric deficit that would provide for weight loss in an individual. Now, for weight to decrease, you have to have a caloric deficit. It just doesn't work any other way. And something that can kind of help 
an individual is an understanding of the math and how it works. So one pound is about 3,500 calories. So as an example, and I'll talk about this in a little bit, a reasonable rate of weight loss would be about one pound a week. Now, if we were to take that 3,500 calories to lose one pound a week, divided over a week would be 3,500 divided by seven, giving you 500 per day. That would mean that over that week, if you could create a deficit of 500 per day, ideally, you would lose about a pound. Now, you could create any combination of decreased intake or increased calorie use to create that 500 deficit. So you could have a conversation with somebody. You could ask them, would you be willing? You know, what, what, would, what would work for you? For example, you could decrease your calories by 250 per day and then try to exercise to burn 250 per day. You could create, find creative combinations that would allow them to do what seems reasonable and possible in their own lives. But that also requires a working knowledge of the calories expended in certain activities and the calories that are in certain foods if you're aiming to decrease calories and increase calorie use. So calories burned during activity are not straightforward. They're dependent on the weight of that person And it also is variable by the body composition of that person. So remember I said earlier that part of what you burn with your basal metabolic rate is based on your lean muscle mass. Well, the same is true for exercise. The more lean muscle mass you have, the more calories you will burn as a part of your exercise. And so these ranges are highly variable. And so that can be frustrating to people who are trying to go through this weight management process and they're trying to use calculators on their phone and they're trying to use, you know, devices that tell them how many calories they burn from their walk. Now, all that is going to do is use things that are inputted like height and weight and gender to try to estimate that. But that's just it. It's an estimate. So, for example, a 155 pound person that walks at about three miles per hour for one hour, they will burn about 232 calories. But that could range anywhere from 150 to 300, depending on the person, depending on whether there's any hills, depending on what their heart rate actually is during that process. So There are a lot of variabilities here, and it's important to kind of have that conversation, to have a realization about that, because none of this is a perfect science. Everybody's going to be different. But, you know, ask them to consider the activities that they enjoy. Do they enjoy biking? You know, that may be something they're more interested in doing. Jogging. Maybe they enjoy sports. So maybe finding some sort of activity that allows for competition, for example. Now that all has to be balanced then with the caloric deficit. So here kind of making some comparisons can be important. So maybe they love desserts and they love apple pie. Well, creating some awareness around how many calories are in, if you, for example, take one sixth of the pie, that's over 400 calories. Now it all, again, depends on the recipe and how much sugar is used, all of that, of course, variable. But if you look at an apple, Again, varies, but somewhere around 100 or less, slightly less than 100 calories. So what about slicing up some apple and sprinkling a little bit of cinnamon on it rather than the apple pie? Look at the drastic difference in calories. Right there, you're going to get around 300, a drop in 300 calories by making that subtle shift. What about a bagel in the morning? 245 calories as compared to a medium banana, that's just a little over 100. So these are some shifts that people can make, but they have to have an understanding of what exists in terms of calories. So you have to begin to think in terms of what can I swap? 
out? What can I do to increase activity to try to create that overall deficit? Now, another way to look at this is through the metabolic equivalent of a task. Now, this might help you as an individual or professional, especially when looking at your NEAT or leisure activities. So comparing to that amount of energy burned at rest, um, you know, this could be something you could use, but this might also be confusing for a patient or client. So I would say you have to kind of gauge the health literacy of the individual you're working with as opposed to, you know, this discussion of the METs in an activity versus the calories expended. Um, And so that's all going to depend on the individualized approach that you take. So the next step here would be with helping that individual to move forward. And this is where that coach approach is critical, having curiosity openness, appreciation, compassion, and honesty, and assessing their readiness. Because it is certainly true that they could be at a different stage of readiness for healthy eating versus their stage of readiness for physical activity. And so this is where that discussion of caloric deficit needs to embrace the idea that they may not be ready for certain changes in in certain areas. So it needs to be individualized so that they can move forward, but have it meet them where they are. So you have to investigate what are they willing and ready to do. So if they're ready to discuss changing their eating habits, you can talk about reduction of calories or even just starting with awareness of calories. Sometimes without making any changes at all, it can help people to just take a few days or a week just to begin logging calories. There are lots of apps out there that will help people do that. So without making any changes at all, sometimes it can be incredibly eye-opening just to ask people to begin to be aware of, and actually log the calories. They may not even have an idea of what they're regularly taking in. And especially important if you've done the calculation of what is recommended as the caloric need for that individual based on all their stats. Now, if an individual is ready to increase activity, you can begin to have that discussion about sensible and sustainable exercise, joyful exercise. And if the person's ready, maybe a combination of the two. But here's where that asking permission to share information, using that elicit, provide, elicit as motivational interviewing process, ask what they know, what they would like to know so that they can make better decisions going forward. So if we start with addressing eating for weight loss, many people dread or despise the idea of calorie counting. And that's understandable because counting calories might seem real easy when you're eating nothing but packaged foods that say right on the label how many calories are in there. But if the goal is to move people more toward whole food, plant-based eating for disease reduction specifically, that presents a little bit more of a challenge because most of your whole foods don't come with a food label on them. So that means if you want people to start cooking more at home, using more fresh vegetables and fruits, that's going to require a little bit more to determine the overall calorie intake that they're getting from that. That being said, it is also true that when you start to shift toward whole food plant-based eating, you often will automatically get a decrease in caloric intake because of something I'll talk about in a different in a minute called caloric density. So you tend to be able to eat until you're comfortably full and still maintain or be below the recommended calorie intake for you for the day, just because of the low caloric density of most of your whole food, plants, and vegetables. Now, unfortunately, Not everybody is ready to completely move to a whole food, plant-based diet, despite the research. So some sort of in-between often occurs. It is important to have that conversation with a patient or client to help them recognize that a caloric deficit is going to be required in some form or another. So they may have to begin to use an app, begin to log foods, develop an awareness Because you can't reduce calories if you don't know exactly how many you're taking in right now. 
So it can also be reassuring to tell a patient or client that counting calories may not be necessary for life. But often that beginning awareness is necessary in order to make a shift and be able to reassess when something's not going right. You have to be able to have enough awareness of the calories in something to be able to make a change. So for lifelong changes, it is important to emphasize the quality. And here, this can be helpful too. That idea that sometimes it's not always about the quantity of calories. Because when you begin to focus more on the quality of the food that you're eating, calories often will go down regardless. Now, one of the issues that people will express and have a fear of is that if they begin to cut calories, are they going to be hungry? So this is where that idea of caloric density comes in. This is a practical practical approach to essentially moving more toward whole foods that will automatically get you fewer calories and keep you feeling full. So this is a concept that can be very helpful for individuals as they start their weight management journey. So foods, and to help you understand all this, this is all based on the amount of calories in a given weight of food. So something that has a high caloric density has a high number of calories in a relatively small amount of that food. So the way I I tend to think of this is, for example, comparing raisins to grapes. Something with a low caloric density has that same weight of food, but much fewer calories. So Here is an image of 100 grams of grapes versus 100 grams of raisins. In 100 grams of grapes, you only have 70 calories and 15 grams of sugar. But in that same weight of raisins, you have 300 calories and 60 grams of sugar. And the other kicker here is look at the volume. It is the much smaller volume. So it's not going to take up as much space in your stomach. And therefore, you will probably feel hungry. Now, one of the reasons that moving toward a whole food plant-based diet can help reduce the feelings of hunger is that most whole plant-based foods automatically have a low caloric density. And there are a few exceptions, for example, like nuts. Those have a high amount of calories and a very small volume. But for the most part, when we're talking about all those fruits and vegetables and whole grains, you are going to see that you can eat a larger volume and get fewer calories, particularly when we're talking about fruits and veggies. So I I think this image, which is also in your textbook, is really helpful. So this is what 500 calories looks like in the stomach. 500 calories of oil takes up very little space. Cheese, again, 500 calories, takes up very little space. Meat, not a whole lot. When you get into some of your grains and some of your complex carbs, you can take up more space in the stomach, particularly if you're looking at whole grains. But look at, if you have 500 calories of fruits and vegetables, it nearly fills, if not completely fills your stomach. Therefore, not only are you getting a ton of nutrients in that food, but you're going to feel more full, which is going to prevent you from feeling hungry, which is one of the biggest fears as people begin to go through dieting. Now, as we talked about last time, There are some factors to consider with healthy eating that can be part of a coaching conversation. We did consider and explore a little bit last time the ideas of emotional eating. Um, We didn't talk a whole lot about food addiction, but I did talk about how sometimes a referral may be needed. And this might be one of those times where a counselor or a registered dietitian might be best able to address things that might be outside of your scope of practice. But you can certainly talk about the impact of the environment. Last time we talked about how junk foods being present and being visible can be a temptation. Whereas putting a bowl of fruit right on the counter cleaning out the pantry so that some of those junk foods aren't even available or putting them in a different location if you have other people in the household that do eat those social influence the people that you're surrounded with again the people in your home in your household that might influence what you eat cultural influences so we talked about some of these last time but a few that i'd like to talk about a little bit more today is emotional eating versus mindful eating how portions can play a role the different factors in satiety, and the sugar cycle. So let's dive into emotional eating. 
Because sometimes people eat not because they're hungry. Sometimes people eat because they're stressed and it's a coping mechanism. Sometimes people eat because they're bored and they're not even aware that they're doing it. They sit down with a box of crackers or a bag of chips and they don't even realize all of a sudden they're at the bottom of the package. They're lonely. Anxiety and depression can also, in some cases, it leads to a decrease in appetite. In others, it increases it. Fatigue, tiredness. Routine. Sometimes you eat because it's breakfast time, not because you're truly hungry. Or it's dinner time, not because you're truly hungry. So one thing that you can discuss with patients and clients is the concept of mindful eating. And this can be pretty important because there are so many things that are naturally part of our society and our culture and the way that we eat that contribute to not being mindful about your meals or your food. So one of the things is just to get present. Realize that you're eating a meal, it functions as fuel, and you can enjoy that meal. And it doesn't have to be a, a process that spoils your day, spoils your week, spoils your whole dieting. You can just enjoy that meal and move on. Avoiding distractions can be huge because that often prevents people from enjoying their food. They can't even process that they're full because they're distracted. So eating in front of the TV, eating in front of a phone or tablet, something that distracts them, keeps them from being able to concentrate on their food. It is also really important to eat slowly. And that's because it allows the body to have time to register a feeling of fullness. It can also even be helpful to drink water between bites, not only to slow down the eating itself, but you're also contributing some volume to the stomach that may make you feel fuller faster with no calories and water. Using your senses. So actually thinking about enjoying your food, you may be able to eat less portion of something if you take the time to enjoy it. So eating slowly, putting your fork down in between bites, and contemplating the taste and texture of the ice cream if you're going to have ice cream, or contemplating the taste, the different spices and the texture of the food. You know, is it pleasing to the eye so that you can actually enjoy your meal rather rather than wolfing it down so you can move on to something else? Now, it's also helpful to create mindful awareness around portion sizes. Now, this is particularly important for someone who has had a similar eating pattern for perhaps the past 20 years they may not realize the effect on their total calories that portion distortion has had. So for example, 20 years ago, a typical hamburger was about a little over 300 calories. Today, most burgers are closer to 600, if not more. So right there, Somebody who is like, you know, I always get a burger when I go to, to McDonald's or Burger King or whatever. They may unknowingly be getting 300 more calories than they, they did 20 years ago. You know, same kind of thing when you look at slices of pizza, often a lot bigger. Your portion at an Italian restaurant, for example, the plates are huge. Even just getting a cup of coffee. Now your big mocha latte frappuccino can give you 400 calories perhaps compared to less than 50 20 years ago that was just coffee with a little bit of milk and sugar baked goods these are a really important part of portion distortion muffins for example at a bakery they're often a lot bigger than they were 20 years ago and cookies as well now, when you put this in the context of the physical activity needed to negate that, it becomes huge. So this 257 calorie difference between the burger 20 years ago and today is an hour and 30 minutes of lifting weights. Not everybody has that much time to do that activity to negate that extra amount of calories. So, you know, walking for an hour and 20 minutes just because you have an extra 300 calories from your fancy coffee that you know has way more calories than it used to. So these are all things to, again, just have a conversation about. Ask permission to you know, first find out what they know. Ask permission to share if they 
would like more information about how considering portions could help them reduce calories. It may be that, you know, they're, they're unknowingly consuming 300, 400, 500 more calories than before, but in their mind, they're eating what they always have. So portion guides can be a good way to go about creating some awareness around how much they are eating, even if they want to continue to eat that same thing. So you can use common objects, and I know this is a bit dated because who had an, who has an iPod these days? But even things like if they're going to have cheese, a matchbox is about the serving size expected for cheese. Fish, having something about the size of a checkbook. If you're going to have... Um, chocolate. Keep that about the size of the dental floss container. I personally find that using um, your own body as an idea of portion size is helpful because this also will help individuals who perhaps are of a different body size. So men who are larger, perhaps way more, and have a little bit higher basal metabolic rate, they then can use their own fist to determine what a typical serving size might make sense for them for rice, pasta, fruits, and veggies. For meat, fish, and poultry, the palm of your hand is the same as about three ounces. If you're looking for, um, you know, things that are relatively high in calories, they have a high caloric density like peanut butter and hard cheese, using your thumb, that's about an ounce. So there's a little note here that, you know, portion sizes here can be important, but this is on that continuum, on that spectrum, moving toward a whole food plant-based diet, because obviously this talks about meat, fish, and poultry, and cooking oils and mayonnaise. Ideally, what you're hoping to move people toward is more whole food, plant-based type of a diet. But as they're moving along, just creating an awareness of portions so that they could perhaps cut down on some of those things. That can be a move forward. Now, several of these things play together to affect satiety, particularly mindful eating and caloric density. And that, as I said, can be a big issue if hunger is a concern with people who are trying to lose weight and cut calories. So determining whether you're hungry or full takes about 20 minutes. So your brain needs that long to register that it's full. So this is where that mindful eating is pretty important, allowing time to enjoy it so that you can avoid overeating. Because 15 minutes later, when your brain has finally registered it and you've now eaten way more than you actually needed, this is that feeling you get when you go to a restaurant and you actually eat the whole portion that they gave to you and you can hardly move. You actually feel not so good getting up from and walking out of that restaurant. Now, you can also use caloric density, and this is kind of an important realization as well. So looking for those high-volume foods that are low-calorie because they have a low caloric density, that is going to fill up space in your stomach, and that will then activate those stretch receptors, and then that will register as you being full even though you haven't taken in as many calories because you've just taken in things that are higher in water and fiber that have a greater volume. So that can be helpful to reduce hunger as well. You can also encourage drinking water with the meal or before the meal. That can help, you know, increase that volume in the stomach, at least briefly. And just concentrating on those fiber-rich nutrient-rich, high-volume foods. And that's also important because you don't want to become a risk to this, a slave to this sugar cycle. Um, This sugar cycle becomes an issue when people are hungry and they use carbs to satisfy hunger. So here's where we get into some of those hormones that I mentioned at the beginning of the lecture. There are several different hormones that are part of appetite, fat storage, glucose use, and you likely have heard of insulin. If you haven't heard of these others, they're pretty important. Ghrelin is a hormone that increases appetite. In fact, something we'll um, touch on a little bit later in the semester is that it also is related to one of the other pillars of lifestyle medicine, and that's sleep. This is one of the reasons there is an association between a chronic lack of sleep and obesity, because research has shown that ghrelin actually increases with the lack of sleep. 
It is made in the stomach and signals to the brain that you're hungry. So when you don't get enough sleep, you have an increased appetite. Now, the other end of the spectrum is leptin. This is an appetite suppressor, and it is made in fat cells, and it is made in proportion to the size of the adipose tissue. So when the adipose cells are larger, they release more leptin. Now the issue with this is that in somebody who is overweight or obese, they will begin to release more leptin. And you might think, oh, well, shouldn't that suppress their appetite? Well, one of the issues is that they end up becoming resistant to it over time. And so that in the end has been shown as an association with obesity, that over time and resistance to leptin seems to indicate that obesity may be more likely in certain individuals and maybe even in families in general. Now, this may sound familiar because another time that we have talked about resistance is that related to insulin. Now, insulin's purpose when released is to bring blood sugar from the bloodstream into the cells to lower blood glucose. It also then helps translate that glucose into fat storage as a way to get it out of the bloodstream. So one of the issues is that if somebody is hungry and they reach for a high sugar carb, so a simple carb, that translates into a spike in blood glucose. The body reacts kind of in an emergency to get that glucose out of the bloodstream and it spikes the insulin. That then takes the blood sugar out of the bloodstream lowers that, but now you're hungry again because of this spike in blood glucose. So some of the things that can help reduce this sugar cycle is eating at regular times, not skipping meals, and concentrating on things that don't spike the glucose. If you want to have a steady level of blood glucose, it can be helpful to concentrate on things that take longer to digest that will produce a more level blood glucose. So whole grains, things high in fiber and protein, those can be highly helpful for those who are pre-diabetic or who are just aiming to try to understand this feeling of hunger that occurs when they reach for things that are high in simple carbs. So all of this being said, exploring all this, perhaps sharing some information after asking permission, it's time to have a conversation with a patient or client about choosing and understanding what they want to do next as part of a long-term weight loss plan. So the goal here would be a healthy eating lifestyle, not a diet. So initially they may be thinking of it as a diet regimen, but sticking with it is an essential step. So really even just changing the terms that we use to describe it, describing it as a healthy eating pattern instead of a diet, a lifestyle, an eating lifestyle. You have to make sure that Whatever they choose, you are providing evidence-based information about making safe and healthy choices. So I'll talk about this a little bit at the end, but this includes trying to avoid the quick fix, fad crazes that are out there that are very tempting, but it has to be sustainable for, and suitable for their own needs, interest, and personality. That means customizing it so that they're able to carry this out for a long time. Now, the other big part of weight management, you know this all too well, is physical activity. So I've talked a lot about the eating plan and we've talked already about physical activity. So I just have a few slides here that tie in how physical activity is important to weight management. But you may have heard the phrase before, you can't out-exercise a bad diet. And there is something to be said for that. So encouraging if they're ready to address dietary patterns first might be a good place to start. However, if their readiness is not there 
for making dietary changes. You can certainly begin to explore a sensible program of exercise, and it needs to be on a regular basis and ideally, again, a lifestyle in order to actually help with maintenance of weight. Because a sedentary lifestyle is one of the leading causes of weight-related issues, it has to be an enjoyable level of physical activity and, and type of activity so that they will continue it. But be flexible enough to change as interests change and boredom sets in. Regular physical activity can affect weight in multiple ways. Over time, it will affect metabolism and allow people to burn calories faster. And it's going to be part of creating the deficit that they need. It can be something within their control to help contribute to the deficit necessary for losing weight. Now, what's interesting here is in addition to assisting in burning calories, aerobic exercise also has this interesting side effect of creating a little bit of self-control with appetite suppression. So at least in that immediate time right after aerobic exercise, most people aren't interested in eating. Their, the blood has gone away from their internal organs, especially their stomach, and they may not, you know, have a sensation of being hungry. And so we also tend to make better decisions during that time period. We don't eat. Or when we do, we may be like, oh, I don't want to spoil my walk today. I'm going to eat some more vegetables. Or they just begin to make better decisions because they feel better. You get all those endorphins and those positive feelings related to um the dopamine, the reward center that you get stimulated with exercise. And so you might make better decisions as a result of aerobic exercise. But strength training is highly important as well because it helps with building and maintaining muscle mass, which is really important for improving the resting metabolic rate. And I'll talk a little bit about that in just a second. It can also allow, as they lose weight, to maintain balance and maintenance. Because once they've achieved their goal weight, it doesn't mean they just get to go back to the way that they were before. They still have to continue with an energy balance or they will gain weight back. And that's often, unfortunately, one of the pitfalls that occurs with yo-yo dieting for people is they reach where they are and they sort of slip back into previous habits. Now, how do you go about choosing an activity plan? So having the conversation with somebody should ideally focus on joyful movement because regular activity is key. They need to enjoy it and look forward to it. So the best activity is the one that you will consistently do. And so you may have people who are like, well, I'm really stumped as to you know what I wanna try. What's your favorite? And sometimes it's not good to answer that question. Or if you do, reflect it right back. Well, saying something like, well, everybody's a little bit different. I personally enjoy exercising outside, walking or jogging, but everybody has different preferences. What are the types of activities that you enjoy? So flipping it right around with an open-ended question that asks them to explore what they might personally enjoy. Because avoiding boredom is key as well, particularly in the long term, being willing to have variety experimenting, eventually they may want to try something else and there's nothing wrong with that. That's actually a good thing in terms of avoiding boredom and maintaining a long-term activity plan. Now, choosing endurance activity that engages larger muscle groups is going to be especially important for metabolism as well as strength training. So one of the issues with people who do an extreme caloric deficit, they may feel as though I'm just going to cut more calories than what we talked about. But that can have drastic effects on metabolism. What you can do is adjust the frequency, intensity, time, or type in order to maintain weight and overcome plateaus. And I'll talk a little bit about that here. So weight loss plateaus and fluctuations are really big issue with weight loss. And that's because they're frustrating. They kill your motivation. They force people to sort of relapse into previous habits because they feel like they're failing, like they're just not able to do this. It is absolutely normal. And this is something that has to be emphasized in conversations. It's absolutely normal for a weight loss 
program to slow or even stall. It can be very frustrating. It can start a downward spiral. And it is all the more important to put it out there. Have a conversation. Realize that it's expected and it's normal and it's okay. And with a few tweaks, most people get through it. But returning back to previous habits will create a further stall. So here's one of the big takeaways that I want you to realize is that more is not better. So I talked before about creating a caloric deficit. So let's say you have that conversation with somebody and you're thinking, okay, let's shoot for a pound a week and breaking that down into 500 calories a day, I'm going to reduce by 250 my intake and I'm going to try to get um, 250 calories burned with exercise each day. And then they're kind of like, man, I have a class reunion coming up in another month and a half. I think I'm going to try to speed this up. Maybe instead of 500 calories a day of a deficit, you know, how about if I go for 1,000? That way I can lose weight faster and reach look fantastic. I can reach this goal way faster. Well, more is not better here because if you end up dropping too far below the basal metabolic rate, you end up slowing your basal metabolic rate. And this can be catastrophic for somebody's weight loss progress. So initially, they may start to think that oh, you know, something's going wrong here. Sometimes they expect to see the scale drop every day, and that's just not the case. A true plateau is two weeks with very little movement of the scale. And overcoming this can require experimentation. Sometimes you just have to change up the activity routine, increase some strength training to try to build more muscle mass, increase intensity, frequency, time, or type, Try a different type, try cross-training, try a different type of aerobic activity. So it also may seem counterintuitive that they may need to eat more. So most people think, well, we talked about a caloric deficit. I need to eat less. I'm just not losing weight right now because I need to eat less. Well, here's where that conversation about the metabolic rate is important because your body for most people, and this is particularly true for women, you should not go below about 1,200 calories because that's what your body needs to breathe, have um, you know, normal heart rate, all of those normal bodily functions. And so if you go too far below that for too long, the body kind of goes into survival mode. So it can be difficult for people to accept that if they're in a true plateau because they tried to cut too many calories too fast, they will have to eat more and then they may begin to see the scale move. So it's counterintuitive. So the reality is that things don't go straight down. This is how we think weight loss works. We think that every day that we stand on that scale, that we are going to see it decrease if we're doing everything right. And that's just not the case because there are so many things that affect the scale that have absolutely nothing to do with whether you're losing fat or not. Your hydration hydration status, how much water you've drank if you're dehydrated or if you're overhydrated. Your salt intake, that causes water retention. So a highly salty meal the night before or eating a lot of processed foods with salt that you're not even aware of, that can cause water retention and affect the scale. Hormones can affect the scale. Lots of stress, not getting enough sleep. So even if somebody is doing everything right, so to speak, they may find that the scale goes up and down and up and down. So If they're the type of person who likes to get on the scale every day and expects to see it go down, it's really helpful to have a conversation about how that number is affected by so much more than what you are doing in this process to try to manage weight. And so looking at other what we call non-scale victories can be helpful. So let's not measure your progress by the scale. If you're upset or frustrated by what you're seeing, what else can you tell me about what you're experiencing now? How do your clothes fit? Oh man, I actually had to tighten my belt the other day. 
Or my pants are a lot looser. It's great. I'm more comfortable when I sit down, when I wear certain clothes. Or I have a lot more energy. I'm just in a better mood. So there are other things that you can have a conversation about. So sensible behavior and having this coaching conversation about behavior change. So weight has all kinds of contributors and it's a byproduct of all kinds of behavioral choices. So having a conversation about informed choices based on science, evidence, not fads or trends. So asking permission, use elicit, provide elicit, which we talked about with motivational interviewing, because it doesn't help to just tell them what will and won't work. You know, if somebody comes in, they're like, oh, I saw this infomercial this weekend and it, it really looks legit. I mean, it, it looks like if I just eat these meals that they send me and I do this exercise routine that I can lose 20 pounds in a month. So, you know, just correcting them off the bat or being judgmental is not going to get you anywhere. You could say, oh, it sounds like you're, reflect, it sounds like you're really excited about that and the possibility of losing weight quickly. Do you mind if I share a little bit about the long-term process of weight gain and weight loss and the potential impacts of doing it quickly versus making it a long-term change that's more sustainable? And then you get to say, well, tell me what you know about that. Or what information would you like about that? And would you be interested in any information about the risks of that? And so sometimes they don't know what they don't know. And so asking permission to share um, in a way that presents the information in a non-judgmental way could help you to move forward in avoiding fads and trends. And redefining success. This is kind of an issue in the sense that sometimes we tend to look at public standards or perceptions as what we think we should have. And so success for one person may be very different than it is for somebody else. And it also helps to be aware of your own personal biases. You know, do you tend to judge people and their behaviors or do you tend to automatically assume something about somebody when you notice their weight? So having your an own your own awareness of your personal biases can be helpful because you may not realize your facial expressions or your reactions in a coaching conversation and the effect they may have on that individual. Motivational interviewing strategies can be really useful for discovering the motivation for individuals. It's, it varies. What what motivates me may not motivate you. And so using those coaching skills and conversational skills to explore that with a patient or client can be really important because that's when it, what's going to help them move forward. Finding out why they're doing this. What is their motivation? And ideally seeking for internal motivation because looking fabulous for that class reunion in a month and a half is probably not going to keep them going for the next year or two. So the internal motivation, you know, being around for their kids you know, reducing their blood pressure medication, being healthy so that they can have more energy to do things around the house. So some of those internal motivators is what's going to help them to move forward. So being curious about what these various factors are and not assuming that what you think could be going on for them is actually what's going on for them. So helping them to explore and then commit to a lifelong habit. And remember, those are the three big key things, a healthy eating pattern, regular exercise, and sensible behavior change. Three key things with weight management. It is not something that can or should happen fast. In fact, the CDC recommends no more than one to two pounds per week as a rate of sustainable weight loss. So that means if you've got somebody who maybe their son is getting married in June and it's March, you would want to have a discussion given the amount of time that you have, do some calculations. This is what might be necessary and what would be recommended as the amount of realistic weight loss you could achieve with these changes by that point. 
So that can be a really useful conversation. Put it all out on the table so there are no assumptions. Because losing more than this at a higher rate, three to four pounds a week, more than that even, that is where you begin to get into issues that impact metabolism. Because that usually requires a severe caloric restriction. And that could be in either form, in reducing the amount that you're eating or excessive exercise that uses more calories. The issue here is that, you know, if you do it in a sustained, slow, steady progress, that turtle approach, right? Slow and steady wins the race. Small changes over time, particularly if you are combining it with exercise that includes strength strength training, you can reduce the impact on your metabolism. But by going quickly, doing it the opposite of the turtle approach, you can get muscle mass loss, which then affects your metabolism and you will burn less at rest and less with exercise. So long-term, it actually becomes a detriment. Now, it's also important to recognize and have a conversation with people that nearly everybody who loses weight gains some portion of it back. The important part here is the realization that Once you reach a goal weight, you can't go back to previous habits. You have to make it a true lifestyle. And a lapse, if you think back to some of the stages of change terminology, a lapse is okay. And that happens to everybody. But a relapse is something that you should try to counsel around. Talk about maintenance behaviors, discuss, troubleshoot, avoiding the relapse because a relapse puts somebody farther back in stages of change. Maybe they were in that, that period of actively making changes and yet because of a little bit of a rebound in their weight, they're now going back to previous habits. So that can be a big conversation with people. So what's the recipe for success? Be realistic. Don't set those lofty body weight goals that may or may not be attainable for you personally or your patient or client. And slow and steady wins the race. Don't go too fast because that affects your metabolism. And seeking and finding that internal motivator so that it truly becomes a lifestyle. Sorry, there's a missing letter there. And that seeking and embracing those internal motivators should ideally revolve around your wellness, your health, acknowledging family history and genetic potential. That maybe what you think is an ideal weight is just not going to work for you. But yet, if you can eat healthy and exercise, maybe you can reduce blood pressure medication. Maybe you can avoid becoming diabetic if you're pre-diabetic. So the more a person can take an educated approach with mindful awareness of healthy eating and activity, ideally to reach an energy balance throughout their lifetime, the more likely they are going to be to maintain and manage their weight over the long term.